welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Last Podcast. Rick Roberts here, episode 193. Closing in on the big 200. Might want to start thinking about downloading some of those episodes. Make sure you have them. I know iTunes kind of stashes the first 50 away, and a lot of people refer to the first 50 as a free course in comedy. And uh, it kind of was. Covered a lot of ground there for beginning comics. Again, go back and check out those early episodes if you're just joining us for the first time. I would like to thank... Katie Schaefer for joining Patreon and supporting the podcast. Katie is uh, joining us at a Club 52 level, which means she gets a weekly email with a specific actionable tip to get bigger, better, and more bookable doing comedy. She also will get to take part in the quarterly hangout that we do online through Zoom, where we get together with the other Patreon supporters, kind of swap out best practices, what's working, what's not, and each get to ask a specific question to get some answers on a thing that's bothering them or holding them back right now. It's great. It's great to have support from comics across the country, and it's just a great way for you as a listener to connect with other listeners. So consider joining Patreon. You can go to schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and for as little $7 a month, you can join that Club 52. Live classes here in Nashville, I teach them. And in fact, this episode is questions that I got after the most recent writing class here in Nashville. Had a few students stick around afterwards. I call these after-school specials. I don't know if you had those when you were growing up, but when I was uh, growing up, they'd have these things like James at 17, and James was going through all kinds of personal problems, and he had a little secret part of his closet that opened up and turned into a, a whole room full of trouble. And we'd have these after-school specials we were supposed to learn things from, and I did. And you're going to learn some things today from this group. Uh, This group asked me some great questions, including how do you get over stage fright, tips for getting your jokes secure, so what happens when somebody steals your jokes, should you even worry about that, how soon can I get paid for doing comedy, uh... Also, tips and questions uh, for a spouse. A spouse joined one of the students on the drive down from Louisville and back each week, you know, almost three-hour trip. So that was a smart move on their part to get some ideas going, brainstorming. But she asked how she can be a very good support system for her husband who's going after this dream of his. And we've got a question about how do you get your jokes from the page to the stage? And that's what we're all about here at the School of Laughs, taking it from the page to the stage. If you'd like to take a live class, we have a performance class coming up. We've locked it in July 8, 15, and 22 here in Nashville, Tennessee. Those are all Mondays. We go from 6 to 8 p.m., and the cost is $200 for that. And that all will wrap up with a show, a live performance at a club here in Nashville, Tennessee this summer. So if you want to get part, take part of that, get some stage time, get specific feedback uh, for your set, and connect with other comics and do a show here in Nashville. I think it's a great deal. July 8, 15, 22. More on that at the end of the show. Let's get into it right now. The after-school special on stage fright, stolen jokes, getting paid, being a good support system, and getting your jokes from the page to the stage. Let's do it. 
So we're here after a writing class, the third of three, and I usually like to sit around and see what's on the minds of students, because I know if they're wondering, you're probably wondering it too. Uh, do me a favor, introduce yourself, tell people why you took the class, and then hit me with your question. Yeah, my name is Matt Blinka. I live in Nashville. Um, I've taken the class just to, uh, as a creative outlet, and just knowing when I learn kind of the technicalities of joke writing. Right. And what's your daytime profession? I'm a graphic designer. So yeah, this helps me kind of just think creatively in a different way. So, but uh, yeah, eventually I'd like to, you know, be more comfortable performing. Cool. And a question today? Yeah, I got two questions and uh, I'll let you kind of take it from there. But first, how do you transition a joke a written joke to the audible delivery and how and where do you rehearse and then how many jokes have you written all time and how many make it to being performed and i'll hang up and listen <laughs> all right he's literally going to hang up and uh, hit the, hit the road so he'll be listening to the podcast for the answer just like you folks are so the first question how do you get your jokes out of your notebook and onto the stage and how do you practice them and kind of time them out you know, it depends on the kind of person you are. Some people speak stuff for a while, and then they write it down, and then they hit the stage. So there's like three three kind of spots to it. They they say it out loud, kind of get the idea of what the joke is. Then they'll concentrate, write it down, expand the idea out, then you know, get it kind of tightened up to where they can remember it and hit the stage. And they practice that out loud. Some people practice in mirrors. I, I never really did any of that. There are times once you start performing that you can record your set and watch the video, and I highly recommend that for sure because you'll see you'll see missed opportunities for uh, some facial expressions and some some body language issues that you might have that you don't know about. And real quickly on that same note, it's sometimes fun to have a friend of yours tell your joke on stage, and you watch how they do it because they may do something perfectly with their body because they're in tune with a joke that you can use later on. So. I would do some things when I first started comedy. I would same group of people hit the open mics week after week, and we knew each other's set. So some nights we would just go, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna be you, and you be me." The audience doesn't know any different. <laughs> so you go up there, and I do a friend of mine's joke, and he's like, "Oh man, you, you really butchered that thing." <laughs> you know, and but he'd go up and do my joke and do it better than me. I'm like, "Okay, thanks for showing me that." But how do you get it from one thing to the other? You know, obviously the first thing is figuring out where it goes in your set. And we talked a little bit today in this last class about how you structure your set. So um, putting it in the right place should give you confidence for doing it on stage. And then again, sort of like we talked about a while ago, is, is hitting the stage, just trying to figure out what it is so you can take it back and rewrite it. So the first thing I would say is get it as good as you can, but realize it's not going to be perfect the first time. No matter how many techniques you've put in there and how funny you really think it is, you don't know until the audience gives you the feedback with their reaction. And then you take it back and rewrite it and bring it back again and again till it kicks in. So, you know, the first thing is taking the pressure off of you. You want to be excellent in your craft and you want to be as good as you can. But at some point you say, this is my, my working draft. Let's see how it is. And just don't stress out about it having to be perfect. I've, I've got friends. I've got one friend in Ohio who's probably written no exaggeration, five or 600 songs that I think all are radio ready. But he is waiting for all five or 600 of them to be perfect before he comes down to Nashville and tries to get with another songwriter to pitch him. So get it out there. 
get the results, and then break it down. Then you ask about how many jokes I've written over the years. Uh, man, it'd be hard. To, I can tell you how many notebooks <laughs> I filled up because um, I have. Let me count. I have at least seven milk crates full of spiral notebooks dating back to 1999. No, 1991 when I first started. And then in those notebooks, too, plenty of napkins and you know sheets of paper that I've ripped off here and there and, and jammed in there. So how many of those, you know, out of all those milk crates and all those spiral binders, that's probably generated how many minutes of material that I've actually used and can use again? You know, at least four or five hours of what I would consider stage-worthy you know, jokes I can put in my set. The one thing I have a little bit of problem with as I get older is <laughs> I can only be in, I call it in touch and in tune with about 90 minutes of material at any given time uh, that I'm working through, you know, the next six or eight, nine months, a year or whatever. I'll start rotating stuff in or out of that, but if somebody said, do a two-hour show, without notes, I probably wouldn't be able to just go up there and do two hours. I could do 90 and know what I'm going to do. But beyond that, I'd be looking at notes and trying to, <laughs> you know, my brain can only hold so much. And that may be true for the whole time I've done comedy. I don't know if I could ever keep more than 90 minutes in there and execute it. So, a lot of jokes. So, and I've probably, how many jokes in those binders? <laughs> Man, thousands. Of, if, I don't know how close you get to a million, but half a million jokes probably. I would, I would guess over all the years. Some sometimes you're cranking out a lot more, a lot faster, and sometimes I'm not writing a joke, you know, for a little stretch because I'm working on something else. But they're in there. One thing I do say is uh, I'll take one of those milk crates out every summer. If I go to the pool with my kids or something like that, I'll grab two or three notebooks out of there and just kind of thumb through it. And every year I find one like, oh man, now I know how to tell that joke. You know, I'll see a lot in there that I never should have seen the light of day. <laughs> but there'll be a few like, oh, I know how to make that work now. And sometimes I have a joke that's been sitting in a notebook like that for 20 years, 30 years almost. Pull it out and it's, it's ready to go. So you never know. I'd say don't throw anything away because you can always get better at telling it. Some stuff you're, you probably should burn. <laughs> A lot of things that are funny to you might not be funny to anyone else, but you don't know until you get it out there. Cool. And then the last little thing I'll say on it too is try those jokes out in casual conversation when there's no expectations for it to be stand-up ready. And sometimes it gives you enough confidence to tell them on stage. Good deal. Thanks, man. Um, well, my name is Sheila Maltz, and I did take the class about a couple of years ago, and I had some health issues, but I really enjoyed it, and um, I... I'm about to have my 71st birthday. Well, and I don't knit and I don't crochet, so I need a hobby. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been so much fun. Um, when I started the class, I had no interest at all in performance. But uh, now I've enjoyed this so much that I'm thinking I want to give performance a try. So um, my big question is how do I get through the fear factor? Yeah. There's a few things you can do. There's Well, there's... Let's say this. There, there's kind of three kinds of fear. And tell me if you have one that's not in this group. One is the fear of failure. One is the fear of maybe forgetting the material and stumbling through it. And the other fear is it's just being rejected. Like your material, you said it correctly, but people didn't like it, so you feel like they don't like you. 
right? So that's those are all possibilities, and they're real possibilities, but but they're not really anything to be afraid of. It's just out there. So there's there's a few things you can do. First thing, you know, physically and mentally, getting prepared for your show. I do this on shows, especially if it's a bigger show or one where I'm starting to feel the pressure. Is I find a little quiet space somewhere. If I'm at a, like a a banquet, I'll go outside, or if I'm at a corporate event in a hotel, I'll go around the corner from where the event is. Breathe deep a little bit. Visualize the first couple of jokes I'm going to say when I walk out on stage, so that if I get hit with a wave of fear when I hit the stage, I know exactly what I'm going to say. So I'm not there like ah, you know, I've already rehearsed in my mind and, and visualize me saying it and the audience reacting well to it. And calm my breath, breathing down a little bit, and just kind of make peace with, hey, this is exciting. I should be excited, but the crowd doesn't know me. They probably don't know when I mess up. I'm the only one that knows my jokes in this whole room. So if I mess up a line, they're not going to know unless I like physically, you know, stumble over the word and start stuttering the word or something. They don't. They have no idea. So that. And then what we talked about uh, a while back was just knowing that. Each performance should be just an experiment. Even when you get to the point where you're getting paid full-time or it's a full-time job, there should be a focus when you hit the stage on top of performing. And for me, that keeps it extra interesting. And so it could be working on my delivery, working on my enunciation is a big one constantly for me, working on the pace of the show so that I don't say things so fast that they don't understand it so they can't laugh at it because they didn't get what I was talking about. Another thing I try to do sometimes is say the words as if I'm thinking of them right now so that I'm saying them at a normal speaking pace, like a conversational pace. Because I can sometimes feel myself, and you'll probably feel this at some point, kind of just doing the jokes by rote or being, I call it, I started sounding jokey, like, hey guys, how's it going? When you feel that, like, oh man, I've gotten into a rhythm that's not real. It's artificial, and the, and the crowd will stop reacting real because they feel like they're just, they're they're not participants anymore. They're just like receivers of the comedy instead of giving back and forth with their their response. And then if, if none of that works, sometimes, this sounds like a horrible thing to do, but I'll tell myself, that there is no comedian in the country that can possibly entertain this group tonight. If I get any laughs from them, I am a huge success. They do not know how bad the setup is, how how poor the sound is, how bad the lighting is, or how late the show started, or you know, they don't know what I know about comedy, so they have no idea how bad this is is going to be. And sometimes I'll just lowball my expectations that it's a, it turns out to be a tremendous show. Because walking up on stage, I took all the pressure off of me because I was like, this, like, nobody can do this show, you know? And then when you get done with one of those shows, you're like, man, I, maybe nobody could have, but maybe I just did. And there's there's more shows than I would like to admit that are kind of like that, despite the the pre-show conversations that set things up correctly, you know? Um, I don't know if there's any other real thing besides, it's just like taking the, the reps. The more times you do it, the... Every time you go on stage now is going to be the first time you experience a heckler or the sound going out or you forgetting a joke or you being distracted by the white staff or a hundred different, a thousand different things. But once you deal with them one time, it's automatic the second time. So it's almost like your first hundred times on stage, 200 times maybe, maybe three or four years worth of stage, you're running through a, an obstacle course. 
and you don't know how to even navigate the obstacle until you encounter it. And you're like, oh, that's how you get around that. You look over here when the guy over here is distracting. You look over here so that people are taking, you know, the focus. Of, there's just things you pick up. So just look forward to the adventure of it. Instead of fear, just have excitement. And then realize, too, you're doing one of the things that people fear the most is speaking in front of anybody. So the audience, this is probably more important than anything I just said. The audience was too afraid to get up on the mic the night that you did. They didn't even show up for the class to learn how to get up on the mic, or they, you know, they went to the open mic and signed up and then left. Every time I teach this, right, I had 12, 12 more people than we had in this class sign up that reaffirmed and reassured me that week that they were going to come that didn't show up because they chickened out. So there's, <laughs> there's a real fear of doing it. You know, it's not Mount Everest. You're not going to die. You're going to have, if it goes bad, you've got better stories than if it goes good. <laughs> I'll put it that way. We could talk for hours about uh, things that can go wrong, but how you have fun. But yeah, just, just soak it in and enjoy it, and Great. I think you'll be fine. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, well, my name is uh, Chris Pearson, and uh, I've come down from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I've been doing it down for probably about, I'd say, two, three months. And uh, I came to take the class because I was definitely trying to write tighter uh, uh, to make my... I guess make my comedy pop more and uh, just to better myself as a comedian so that I can you know, use this to sustain myself. That's great. And was the class helpful, you think, from? Yes. Okay. Well, what's, what's the question today? Well, the question is, uh, when do you, or when will you know if you can uh, go out for booking to, you know, try to start to generate some revenue from it? Yeah, so it's... The, there's a couple of different ways to answer that. First, it's, it's going to be different for everybody because different people accumulate material at different rates, have success with the material at different rates, have opportunities at different rates. Mm. So if you're on track to where you're, you're writing material and you're developing, and this may sound like not much, but if you're developing two or three minutes of good material every month, that might take you 15 open mics it might take you five. You, I don't think you can do it with less than five. I mean, you should probably be hitting the stage two or three times a week or as much opportunity as you can get. But if you're generating material that works every time, you know, two or three minutes of that every month, then in a year's time, you should have enough material where you p- could potentially MC some shows. Now, you probably won't start at the comedy club doing that because you'll need to get your feet wet. So, you know, in Louisville, there's different shows that are booked around town, outside the comedy club. Mm-hmm. Local comics put on shows, and those are usually called, uh, well, there's open mics for sure, but there's also booked local shows. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not anybody who shows up can go up. It's people that have been in the comedy club scene for a while in that town. Uh, they see Chris Pearson. They see him. He's been doing three open mics a week. seems like for a year now, man. He's, I know he's got 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Let's see if he can host a show. So the show might be at a sports bar could be at the Holiday Inn, you know, <laughs> a lot of shows in the old days used to be at the Holiday Inn, but they'll give you the opportunity to do that, and it won't pay a lot, they might say, we got 50 bucks t- for you to host this thing tonight, realistically, they'll probably ask you to host it for no money, because they might not be making any money, they might be making money on the back end of the night, where if the bar sells X amount of drinks, then the, the guy who organizes the show gets 150 bucks or whatever. Sometimes they keep all that money. Sometimes they divvy it amongst the comics. Sometimes they just pay two or three people on the show. So it's it, it, it'll it vary wildly. And then 
let's say you do that and you've been and you have success with that. And you're like, man, maybe I should have my own monthly show. And this is something I recommend uh, at some point for every comic to create their own opportunities is to have your own show. You probably wouldn't want to do it any earlier than a year or any earlier than you would have 15 or 20 strong minutes. Because you, if you're hosting every week, you burn through that material pretty quickly. Mm. And then you're just kind of grasping for straws. But you want to have – you can entertain the crowd, introduce the comics, keep the flow going. And then that would be my first step after doing a few of these little book shows where you see people are trusting you with their stages. You start your open stage once a month, wherever, invite those people to come onto your shows. And you'll start to see them reciprocating that back and forth. You know what I'm saying? At some point, uh, you'll hit the comedy club where they have an open mic night. I'm not sure of the situation in Louisville right now, but they they have been pretty good over the years at having some open stage opportunities. You may have dipped your toe in that already, or you might do that within that first year, year and a half. But I wouldn't go in there too early to where – I mean, there is a lot to say about first impressions. If they see you struggle many times early on, and they almost expect you to struggle. And by them, I mean the other comics or the management who might be watching the show. Who are, Usually they're so busy in the back they're not watching the show. So there is no really risk of losing anything. But whenever I did an open mic at, at a comedy club, I wanted to make sure that I'd worked all that material out at these other places, these other open mics, and gotten them tight there. So that when I went to a real club, they saw the best version of me that I had at the time. If you do that consistently and they see that you've come in, you know, three or four times over over several months with your new tight five or whatever, and they see you've got 10 or 15 minutes that's very solid, the next typical step is they'll say, hey, do you want to do a set during a real show? Like on a Thursday night or a Sunday night where they've got a regular audience, they'll have somebody go up after the MC or the feature act sometimes and do five or seven minutes. And that's when they can first see you in front of a real audience to see how your comedy stacks up. Because comedy stacks up one way in an open mic night against other amateurs, right? And then you take that and put it in front of people who tour for a living. How does it stack up then? And so that that sometimes can be an eye-opener. Sometimes it's a great eye-opener. Like, hey, I was just as funny as the MC and almost as good as the feature. Well, if the club sees that in you, then they might invite you back down the road to MC the show. So you're there for the whole week. Again, clubs will try to pay as little as possible. So I know there's several clubs in the South. They don't pay the MCs anything, but they'll give you a couple of drinks, and they they might give you something out of the kitchen, you know. Well, if if you don't take that offer, then they probably won't give you the the offer that comes with money. <laughs> so there's those paying your dues kinds of things, and a club will do that as long as they can get away with it until one night. There's nobody that's willing to do it for free, and they need to pay somebody, and that's suddenly your first paid gig at the club. And if you do that well, then they'll have you come back. Uh, it's a real supply and demand market, and the bigger the city, sometimes the more people that are willing to do it for free to get their feet in the door. And sometimes the club doesn't really care that much about how good they are. They're just willing to do it for free or for the two drinks or whatever. So it's a long answer to your question, but I'm trying to show you like there's a million different ways to go with it. So... To th- what you can control is your own opportunities by creating your own stage. So, and I've got two or three podcasts specifically step by step how you go about going to a bar or a restaurant, finding out what their slow night of the week is, seeing if they would put up 150 bucks for you to put on a show, what they would 
give you for that, how much they would advertise locally in, in, inside the restaurant for you. But that's a great first step because you have as much time as you want each month because you're the it's your show. Mm-hmm. You can do jokes between the comics, you know, work out new material between the comics, and just get all that extra time on stage. You know, time on the microphone is what you need. Lots and lots of. Occasionally, see somebody that catches on faster than you think somebody should. Lots of times, you see some people that are like, "Man, they should have been they should have been working full time for a couple of years now," but they've they've to you, maybe seem to over-prepare, mm-hmm. but you you really can't over-prepare uh, for going full-time. But to make some money off of it, it would it's not impossible to start bringing in some money under two years, but it's more realistic to think, you know, how much time do I have? It's 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 more how quickly do you get to 20 minutes at solid, 10, 10 to 20 minutes at solid, then opportunities start happening. And so I know people here in Nashville that have done the same seven minutes since 1999 and haven't got any better and they haven't got paid and they've been doing it for 10 years. Yeah, I'm trying to keep moving forward. Right. And just because they've memorized seven minutes doesn't mean it works. And just because they're comfortable with it doesn't there's – a, there's a big problem with people who equate comfort with success. And that's in business, in life, all kinds of stuff. But people, because it's familiar, they feel like it's okay. But lots of horrible things become familiar to people, and they accept it. So, you know, just defining for you what is what is an acceptable amount of time to to try to get your foot in the door at the club. Do they respect you or your comedy, or are they, are they taking advantage of you? In the beginning, you need them more than they need you, so you have to make concessions and try to, you know, you do the shows for free on the last minute notice until they, you know, should respect your comedy if it's working. And then if you feel like it, they're not, then you have to make that kind of decision. I'm not going back there unless they pay me. And sometimes it means you never go back. <laughs> sometimes it means they finally respect you, and they're just waiting for you to ask. So the focus, what you can control is how much time you spend each week writing. Sort of in your control is how often you can get out to, to get on stage, depending on your family situation. You know, I was lucky where I started when I was single, and there was no – I could stay up all night and – my job allowed me to come in anytime I wanted to the next day. So I had really free range on, I, you know, I was doing nine open mics a week when I first started from the very second week that I decided to do it. I was, so I was able to get material tight quicker. Um, so just making sure every open mic counts and that you're developing some material each time with that. So I wish I could tell you it'd be next Tuesday, <laughs> but it, you know, it takes time. And if anybody tells you differently, they they might be right, but that's that's kind of the straight shooter. I hope it wasn't. I hope it was specific and not vague, but no, I feel it, it could was, be both. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Can I, can I give you one more tip too? And this because I'm sure people are listening. Like that, how do you how do you even know who to ask for gigs, right? So first, be be present and relative and supportive in your local scene. So as much as you want to go to open mics. Uh, and participate occasionally it might be good just to go and watch and support with no agenda and not be because i know when i go to open mic i'm looking at my notebook and i'm not even listening to comics and then as soon as i'm done i'm usually hanging out in the hallway talking to the other comics or I, I i knew that was part of me in the old days and then i realized i'm not helping anybody but myself i need to help this part and the same thing for the club before i'd even even asked to do the open mic at the club i'd make sure that i had 10 shows there when i can you know, they have enough shows that are free or, um, you know, almost free shows, two drink minimum or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
and just go watch comedy so you're a regular face walking in the door. So when you come to open mic and you want to get up, they're like, oh, man, we've seen you here 10 times already. That's cool that you were supporting the club. And it, that helps more than you think for the, the staff and the management to kind of recognize you mm. as a person before you're even a comedian. So if you can get out there and see the shows. The other thing I'll say is, you know, you're doing a great thing by coming to Nashville. You're investing some time in that. So with the beauty of Facebook these days, you can search comedy. You know, go in the Facebook search bar and search Evansville Comedy. And there'll be a Facebook group for Evansville Comedy, Open Mics. And you can just ask to become a member, watch what shows are going on there. And if you want to shoot over to Evansville, which is quicker than going to Nashville even, right? You can shoot over there, get an open mic. When you're there, let the people in Evansville know what's going on in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of open those doors. You can do the same thing with Lexington, same thing with Cincinnati. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was planning to do next. Is some uh, another comic I was talking to back in Louisville, and that's what we want to try to do is hit some surrounding cities. Yeah, and you're geographically in a great spot. Louisville, I mean, Columbus, Ohio, that's a, a, a should be a place, a destination for you once you really get some serious material down. Um, the Funny Bone there, the the guy that runs that, books a lot of Funny Bones. So that's one you want to be over-prepared for whenever you get up there. But you're, you're a short drive from so many great cities. So take advantage of that. I'm going to try to drive. There you go. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Um, my name is Katasha Pearson, um, the wife of Chris Pearson. Um, and so I have um, allowed myself to be a, what I would think to be a good support um, for Chris um, in this new adventure um, for us. Um, and um, so my question for you today was, what, as a spouse, what would be the best supporting role to be able to help them to be successful yeah it, it's going to be tricky for sure because uh if you both go to the same show he gets up has that adrenaline rush comes off whether it was good or bad or confusing or scary or whatever you have to kind of learn how to interpret how he is and you might chris want to develop a little shorthand and just kind of if i come off and i'm if i go to the back of the room it means i need some time <laughs> you know <laughs> if you get in the car and it was and you know, she she wants to know how you, how you're feeling, but you might not even want to say it. You know, good, bad, or whatever. Usually, good, you're gonna it'll be you'll be nonstop talking, <laughs> and so you'll have to learn how to tell them. Okay, I get it. Uh, but now we gotta get home and get the kids ready for school, or whatever it might be. Um, I think it's real fun that that you're supportive of him, and I'm curious, like how long did he talk about doing this before starting, and like what was that first first time he brought it to your attention what was were you surprised or did you bring it to his attention or probably probably not no he um he has really been doing comedy ever since i met him which was we were 15 years old really yeah he um has been everyone we've been around they're always like he's so funny you know he should be a comedian um so at the beginning of the year um that was a goal that he set for himself was to stand foot on stage and to do at least an open mic in 2019 um in a few months i mean a few weeks later he actually did that um and then loved it so much that he wanted to continue to try to make this uh, a means for him and i and our children well i mean you know it's gonna be a while and uh the, the key, I think, off stage is 
and this is something I, I really try to do and I've learned to do better as I've had kids and those kinds of things um, is when I'm home, I'm a hundred percent home. And when I'm doing comedy, I'm doing comedy. And when, when things work great, I can incorporate the two. I can bring my family on some gigs. Sometimes it's, it's a lot harder than it sounds uh, to do because typically the gigs are later and, you know, even trying to work in working vacation. Sometimes we've, we've done that, but making sure that everything else that happened before comedy stays important, but there will be, I mean, you've seen already from a time um, commitment, some, you have to give up something. So you don't want to give up the things that are working and the the family stuff. It's that's good. The good stuff, but, and you'll have to make up extra time to your wife too, uh, for being gone when you start being gone. And, and when you're doing that again, hundred percent there for her, cause she's, taking a big step, you know, helping you get this ball rolling. I imagine 99 out of 100 spouses would try to nip it in the bud, you know. Hey, man, you could tell that wasn't very good tonight. You don't want to do that again, you know. And just so encouragement is like gasoline on the fire. So, but also, you know, and I'm saying this from 29 years or something like that on the other side of it, and I don't know that I could take this advice early on, but it's also realistic to maybe put – somewhat to recalibrate your expectations all right so it's a great phenomenal goal to to have this be a full-time job but i would spend time also with especially in your local comedy scene uh guys like tim i know you know tim northern and some of those guys up there find out what is it like full-time and make sure you want to be part of that before you're working towards it you know um we talk in the business class you know kind of into financials and things on best case scenarios and worst case scenarios but there might be some point where you go, you know what, this is going to be a fun side thing I do. It's not going to be my full-time job, but I've got a full-time job now, and I can do this two weekends a month. I can still hit so many open mics per week to make sure that it's worth you know, somebody paying me for, and it can be extra income on top of what I'm, I'm doing already. But it may not be something that generates enough money to replace what you're earning and any benefits that come with what you're earning now. I don't know how it works out with you guys and, you know. I'm lucky enough now where my wife's job is covering our benefits, but for, for many years, she stayed home with the kids, and my income had to, to pay for uh, health care, mortgage, everything, and she paid with you know taking care of the kids, and that's equally important. So there might be a point where you go, yeah, full-time just may not happen, but I can make X amount of dollars every month doing stuff locally or within a three-hour drive or a five-hour drive from Louisville, and that that keeps me happy. It keeps my funny tight enough to stay funny and, you know, keeps the family together and everything else. So it would, it would not be a failure to go two or three years into it and realize it's something different than you thought it could be, you know? And I, I know a lot of comics that it, they did that. They, they started off, they wanted to do it full time. They're like, you know, it could be a side thing, but they really made the side gig, when they focused on it, they focused on that 100% in the time that they gave it. And it became something that grew into something that could replace. You know, When they took the specific timeline deadline off of it, it kind of took some pressure off. They became more creative and generated more material, and it eventually became something that was full-time. So, yeah, stick with them. Uh, be honest. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and just, you know, 
I think it's great. Have fun as much as you can with it. I know you guys drive back and forth, and you're probably running some jokes on the way down here or the way back. But also let him know when, like, hey, you need some other comedy buddies right now. And, and you got to read her well. If she's in, not in a great mood, your, your new five minutes might not be the thing to cheer her up. <laughs> it might be the one that has you sleeping on the couch. <laughs> Thank you so much. You bet. Good luck with things. I'm Dave Barber. I live in a little community called Lone Hill, Missouri, just outside of Poplar Bluff, Missouri. Yeah, I've drove over 4 million miles in my lifetime, and 2 million miles in just one truck alone. I had I was owner-operator. Yeah, I drove 262 miles just to get here today. That's impressive, and I appreciate that. Well, it's worth it. Thank <laughs> you. It. I've done that drive before, man. That's a sacrifice. <laughs> What's on your mind t- today? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, now I'm not, I'm just getting started out and everything, so I don't have this problem yet, but I know it's always on somebody's, people's mind is that always the fear of somebody stealing your best material. I mean, is there much of a fear of that, or and is there anything, there's not probably much you can do to prevent it if they did, if you did have anything worth stealing, but... I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That's it's one of the first questions people ask even before they have material sometimes because it's just a curiosity thing. And comedy is so different than music. You know, if if somebody goes plays a Journey song out at uh, you know Tootsie's or something, they're you know everybody loves uh, the Journey song and they can play it because they're a cover band or whatever. You can't really cover other comics or else you get. I mean, it's just not the way to go. Comedy is is very interesting in that way. So, a couple of things in there. Is there a fear that everybody fears it? Um, but the reality is, and here's here's kind of what I've learned over the years. First, it's a great problem to have because it means you've got great material and people want it. It's obviously a, a negative because they're going to be doing it. The real problem comes in is if they do it somewhere that you want to go to that you haven't gotten to yet. And so when you get there... They think you stole it from them. And that happens in the, the comedy club circuit quite a – I wouldn't say it's all the time, but it happens – it's not uncommon where somebody sees a line over here in Cleveland and they're like, oh, man, I don't think that comic works in Buffalo. So they go to Buffalo and they they try to like take that joke, but then they don't realize the headliner worked with that guy from Cleveland and goes, man, you just, you're taking Bobby's joke, man. You can't do that. Other comics will help protect your material in a weird way. You know, if if you're if they like you, that they'll they'll stick up for you. So I remember times where, gosh, it was, it was many years ago, but I was in I was in Lexington where I grew up at the comedy club there, and I got a a phone call to the payphone there from another comic who knew the payphone phone number, <laughs> and uh, the wait waitress was like, hey, the phone's for you. I'm like, so I go pick it up, and they're like, Rick. One of your jokes is killing over here in St. Louis right now. And he had his cell phone. He put up the cell phone, and the comic was doing one of my bits. It had been on one of my CDs already, word for word. And he go, I go, well, who is it? And he told me who it was. And I, I, I tracked the guy down the next couple of weeks and let him know that I knew, and he quit doing it. But it was a guy that I'd never seen before. He worked with me like three weeks before that at a one-nighter, like in Harrodsburg, Kentucky. That He was just a one-nighter comic, and he just, he just lifted it and took it. I walked in on a comic doing one of my bits once uh, in my own town in Columbus where I started out in comedy. I had this joke. I even had a T-shirt based on the joke. And so he doesn't know. He thinks I'm out of town or something, I guess. I don't know. But he's up there. He's emceeing, and he's doing my joke word for word. And I see it start. And I'm like, oh, man. And it was like a three-minute. I run up to my car, and I get my T-shirt. 
and before he wraps up, I hand him a t-shirt to him. Might as well sell the shirt, buddy. And he looks at me. He's like mortified. Like, ah! I'm like, <laughs> you can't be doing this, man. But he was new. He, you know, he he didn't know that he wouldn't get away with it. Uh, but it's funny that he tried it in the same club that he saw me do it in, in my own club, my own home club. So you've got to write quicker than they can steal. You've got to write knowing that uh, if it's great, some people might try to take it or take – sometimes they'll just take the premise and put their own punchlines with it. There was a guy in uh, Pennsylvania who did this all the time. He had a horrible reputation, and his first name was Scott. I won't tell you his last name, but he called it sideways writing. He's like, I'm writing a joke. I'm just taking your setup. Well, this, to me, sometimes the premise is the hardest thing to come up with, something fresh. That's the angle that's setting everything up. You just can't cherry-pick those from 20 of your favorite comics and write your own punchlines. And he's like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Look at the punchlines. They're different. And I was like, well, here's the deal. I'm never going to work with you again. I'm not going to have you open a show for me. I can't, you know, I'm not going to recommend you to anybody. It's just, it doesn't work that way. So the there's no legal thing you can do. You know, you can't sue them. Uh, you can, but you're going to waste all your money. The judge is going to say, nothing I can do for you. The only thing you can, that you can do now, if you want to argue it with them, is put your material up. Now, it seems counterintuitive. I don't want my stuff to be stolen, so I won't put it on YouTube. I won't say it on a radio interview, or I won't do it online somewhere. But once you put it up, that video has a time, date, stamp on YouTube. You know, this thing was posted 100 days ago, whatever, a year ago, 10 years ago. And if somebody all of a sudden is doing your bit, you can call them out and go, hey, you may not even know this, but that's my bit. <laughs> I'll show you the video, and it's word for word of what you're doing right now, so stop. You know, And if they don't, if you want to you know, take it to the next level and put your video next to theirs and spread it all over the Internet and say this guy's a thief, you know, you can. But in the long run, it's just a lot of wasted energy on something you can't control. Again, what you can't control is writing more and writing so fast they can't steal it. I know one comic who only, only posts videos online of him dealing with hecklers. Because you can't steal that. He never posts any material online of his actual show. But he gets booked because people see how well he handles the heckler. He must be funny in his real show, but none of his material is online anywhere that you would go find it. So that's an, another way you can maybe keep your material secret. But in reality, these days, any publicity you get, as long as it comes back to you, is probably going to be in your favor. Thanks, Dave. And keep on trucking. Come on back to Teddy Bear. Some Red Soul Vine coming up tonight. 10-4, good buddy. Boom, there you go, rim shots and all. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, I've got several of these after-school specials that you might want to check out if you enjoy the Q&A format. Uh, you want to check out episode two. That's right, the second one we ever did. Uh, F- episode number 16, uh, 91, and episode 107, we did email questions from the inbox, and that's all Q&A. I would like to say, if you want to know more about Taking Your Comedy First Steps, episode 44, Stand-Up Comedy First Steps, is a good episode to listen to, kind of following up on what Matt had to ask, as well as Chris. Chris asked about getting paid. We have an episode about that, actually a couple, episode 14 and 15. You want to check those out. Sheila was talking about overcoming stage fright. We have an entire episode on that, episode 54. And Dave was asking about joke thieves. And we've got a whole episode on that, Joke Thieves and Stolen Laughter, episode 31. 
Lastly, Chris's wife asked about how she could be a good support system for a new comedian. And I have two episodes that kind of relate to that. Uh, one very specific comedy career, Home Life Balance, episode 13. And starting comedy late in life. Not that Chris is that much older than uh, the average starting comedian, but starting comedy late in life, episode 108. And I guess what I mean in that episode by late in life is after you've got a job doing something already and you're thinking about trying to replace that job with comedy. Very good, folks. I would love to invite you to join us for the live performance class taking place Mondays, July 8, 15, and 22 from 6 to 8 p.m. here in Nashville, Tennessee. You get up on stage, three minutes, then you sit down for 12. And for 12 minutes, we go over every joke, every action, and tweak it to make it bigger, better, and stronger. I love it. That's one of my favorite classes to teach because you get to see the wheels turning and all the students get to chip in with some ideas as well as far as where the jokes could go and where they thought they were going. All kinds of insight that you wouldn't get if you were just sitting there writing jokes and going up to an open mic. So that's happening here in Nashville again, July 8, 15, 22, all Mondays. $200 covers the class course and you will get a chance to perform on stage here in Nashville in a graduation show. Cool stuff. That's it for this episode. Uh, not it, No, it's not. It's not. I forgot to mention that I have the online class. I'm really trying to get some folks enrolled in that this summer. I have time to focus on you, and I'm going to give you an incentive. You can use the coupon code BETTERCOMEDY, all capitals letters, all one word, Better Comedy, at checkout to get 20% off the silver edition of the stand-up comedy writing class. A real quick snapshot of what takes place in that class Lots. There's a, I guess there's almost four hours worth of five to seven minute videos, each a a very doable size assignment. And you get in there, you write some jokes, and then you apply techniques, and then you learn how to structure those jokes into a set to perform. So whether you've been doing comedy for a while or you're just getting started, the online writing course guaranteed to tweak some things and make things better for you. Check that out online. It's $97.77, but you got 20% off. You do the math. It's almost $20 off, and I think you're looking and sitting pretty pretty for the summer. Hopefully, you've got time to do it. Take it. Find out more about that. Schooloflast.com. Go to the classes link. Check out online classes. Thanks, thanks again to Katie Schaefer for sponsoring this episode. Stay safe out there, folks, and stay funny. for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.